The Athletic Podcast Network is supported by the Quip Electric Toothbrush, the iPhone of toothbrushes. There's a lot of misinformation about oral care. Truth is, you need only three things to have a healthy mouth. Brush two minutes, twice a day, and replace your brush regularly. The Quip Electric Toothbrush makes it easy. The timer with guiding pulses ensures an even clean, and brush heads are delivered every three months when you need them. Get your first refill free at getquip.com slash listen. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash listen. That's getquip.com slash listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Well, Actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. This is your host, Fernando Prates, and... I would really appreciate it if you kept what I'm about to say in today's intro between us. See, here's what happens when I have guests on this show. You win because you get to have awesome people sharing insight and stories involving Michael Bisping-related frauds and Vladimir Putin and anxiety and poop and balls because we're sophisticated like that. (laughs) I win too because I get to be shamelessly lazy and ask other people the tough questions that you ask and I really don't know how to answer. And my guess, well, they really don't win anything. But in my defense, they should know better than associating with me. The point is, yeah, it always ends up being a super fun experience. But before the fun part, there's a shit ton of just pure nervousness. I get incredibly intimidated because I'm talking to guests whom are sometimes my colleagues or my friends or just people that I find way cool, but who are always, always people that I deeply respect. That's the one thing that I decided from the start that I would never compromise on. Today, though, I am compromising on it. Everyone else was unavailable, so I had to get Ben Folks. See? I have a feeling there will be some mutual roasting on this episode, so I figured I might as well fire the first shot. But obviously, I am kidding, and it's very much the opposite. I respect Ben immensely, as both a professional and as a sentient carcass of flesh and nerves, and I am actually extra intimidated today. And this is precisely why I'm asking you to keep this between us, okay? Ben mustn't know about such embarrassing admiration that I have for him. Really, it will just ruin our whole thing. Ben is my current colleague at The Athletic and a former colleague at MMA Junkie. He's also a podcast host, but not like me, like a for real podcast host. He and our other co-worker, Chad Dundas, are in charge of the co-main event podcast, which I would assume a lot of you who listen to me also listen to because clearly you have exquisite taste. You've probably noticed by how often I mention Ben's work here, but he is legit one of my favorite MMA writers. And it's not just because of his style, which personally I love, but also because of the sensibility and the sharpness of his approach to stories that I know aren't always easy to tell. Ben is funny, he's annoyingly smart, he has killer taste in t-shirts, and his gift game is actually pretty damn good if you consider that he's like a thousand years old. Sorry, the whole being nice thing was making me very uncomfortable. So here's Ben, or whatever. Okay, everyone, because I have a very special guest today, I am going to try something different, a little game, if you will. It is called 10 Awesome Things About Fernanda, and because the play, you know, it's very simple. All the players have to do is come up with a list of 10 awesome things about me. Um, It is a little embarrassing, but what can I say? I don't make the rules, and I know it's very hard to narrow it down to just 10, but uh, the good news is that I am going to give our guest until the end of the episode to think about it. So Ben, uh, get to thinking on that. But first, hi, welcome to the podcast. Number one, humble. I'll just throw (laughs) that one out there just to get us started, just to get the ball rolling. See, see, you're ready. Hello. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I like where you're going with this. Oh, thank you for being here. Uh, I believe that you can narrow it down to 10, though. I know it will be hard, but I think you were expecting this to happen. So Yeah, I've been waiting for it all my life, really. <laughs> uh, so, Ben, uh, you're a pro. You have your own podcast. Uh, I'm kind of bad at this. So what I do to start things off is I cheat with... Uh, an extremely lazy first question, uh, but I, I swear I'm just, I'm legit curious about this. You seem like a relatively normal guy who um, 
clearly, since you are talking to me right now, um, makes some bad decisions uh, sometimes. So speaking of bad decisions, why MMA? How did it happen in your life? What a roller coaster of a question this was. It started out yes, with me being called relatively normal, and I was like, "Man, this is yeah. this is not bad. This is okay." It's, and then, then we got around to bad decisions. Yeah, um, kind of how I do it here. I guess. Well, you know, I was always into combat sports. My dad was really into boxing and everything when I was growing up, and so he would. I remember him showing me like old Muhammad Ali fights and everything, and so. Uh, and also being the person who let me and my best friend, Matt Stone, strap on some boxing gloves when we were 10 years old and like beat each other up in the living room until he realized, like, oh, it's probably a bad idea to send this kid home with a bloody lip. Uh, maybe we should make him stop. But I, I always, you know, I grew up in that era of, like, karate kid and, like, karate movies and everything, and my parents would never let me do karate. And I played the regular American sports, a lot of football and stuff all through high school, and when I went to college in San Diego, I went to San Diego State, and I played one year of college football at a small, like just enough college football to be like, yeah, you've, you've figured out as far as you can go playing football. And I stopped, and I needed to do something kind of athletic. And in San Diego, there were a lot of Brazilians, a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms, and I'd always, I remember seeing the first couple of UFCs on uh, VHS and been like, okay, whatever this skinny guy in the gi knows, I probably need to know that just because... When you're like a 19-year-old dude, you're like, I probably should learn how to fight and defeat every other human on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm, Very logical. Yeah, it's probably a skill I'm going to need at some point. (laughs) Uh, And so there were a lot of options for that. And I I just started going to a jujitsu, like picked one out of the phone book, which tells you a little Mm -hmm. bit about the era that we were in. And uh, just started going to... They're very vintage. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know because I'm very young. Uh, but yes, go ahead. Yeah, see, it used to be a device that you plugged into the wall. It's crazy. Uh, and so, like, I started doing jujitsu, and through that, like, at the jujitsu gym, there would be guys who competed in local MMA events, and then guys at the gym would just be talking about MMA stuff, and that's kind of how I got plugged into like what was actually going on in MMA then, because I felt like I was kind of disconnected. I was aware of it in the mid '90s as being this weird thing. And then kind of didn't think about it for a while. And then when I was in college and learning jujitsu, it was like, no, it's an actual sport now. Like when I wasn't looking, it has begun to turn into an actual sport and people around me were doing it. And there was a little bit of a vibrant scene at the time. And so, yeah, I just got super into that. And all through college, I did jujitsu and got more and more into MMA. And at the same time, more and more into writing. That was just kind of the only, anything close to a skill that I actually had. And so those two things kind of dovetailed for me and it seemed like, well, ideally you would get a job writing about MMA, but that's not a thing. So what are you going to do? <laughs> um, and then somehow I ended up here. Did uh, people find it weird that you were into MMA at the time? Way more like so back then. You. Yeah. Yeah. Cause my roommates were not super into it. Uh, like I was the only one of us who did jujitsu and was into that. And like trying to get them to get a pay-per-view where it's like, okay, we all have to pitch in on this pay-per-view thing and try. And I would convince them every once in a while to get a boxing one. Like, you know, Mike Tyson fought Lennox Lewis and yeah, we got that stuff like that. But then I think the only UFC one I ever convinced them to get was Tito Ortiz and Ken Shamrock. And it was like, Mm -hmm. they were like, okay, that feels like people we know and people we care about. So we'll get that one. And, but especially, you know, You'd, you'd meet a girl at a party and start talking to her and yeah. you're trying to talk about your interests and you're like, well, I like this thing where these uh, men stripped to the waist beat each other up in a cage. Uh, and I find that very interesting and engrossing. And they're like, uh-huh, okay. Well, <laughs> it was nice to meet you. And yeah, so like back then it was way more of a weird thing. And now I think people have all, they're at least aware of it. They know it's a thing. They've kind of made up their minds what they think of it. And at least it's not treated as just a completely bizarre subculture anymore did um but when did it first like like you said it's you you first think of it like okay it's not a thing like i'm not gonna be able to like i like this and i like writing but like writing about this like it's just not an option uh when did it really start looking like uh it could be a career for you yeah, well, I remember I would, because I was really into writing fiction mostly, and so I would try to write like fiction about like fight fiction around MMA. And uh, when I went to grad school for creative writing, and just by luck, I met Chad Dundas, who was also into MMA and writing. And it seemed like, well, I just assumed that I would not 
a really be friends with too many people I met in writing school because I thought they'd all be a bunch of nerds. But B, there's no way that anybody else there is going to care at all about MMA. And I mean, it's like the first thing I did when I came to Montana, I came to Missoula and got to town for grad school was look up a gym where I could do jujitsu. And then to, to meet somebody else who was actually into it and was like in the same program I was, uh, that was really surprising. And we, Chad had a friend who uh, did websites for a bunch of fighters. He did, he, he was doing like freelance websites for a whole bunch of people. And he had like, you know, really huge clients. Like, and then also just for fun, because he was an MMA fan, he'd be like, okay, sure. I'll do Rampage Jackson's website. Even if, uh, he only sometimes pays me. And like, a <laughs> that sounds like a very like Rampage Jackson. Oh yeah. Thing to do. Uh, or just like <laughs> how many times a week where he was like, yeah, I had to lock boss Rutten's webpage because he just won't pay me and everything, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah. but he had the, the kind of technical knowledge and was also super into MMA and he wanted to start his own site. And at the time, I remember it felt like this is like 2004, 2005. And at the time it was like, there was MMA weekly, there was share dog and there was not a whole lot else. And so we were like, Hey, we could just start a website. Like we have a couple of writers, uh, we have a guy who knows the the website of it, so like let's just do it. And so we started our own thing, and would just write stuff up. Uh, and I mean, nobody was making any money off of it; it was just for fun. But then when I graduated uh, from grad school and I moved to New York, just out of didn't have any better ideas, and it seemed like, oh, that's what young professionals do: is you go to New York and you try to get a job. <laughs> and I was not that successful in getting a job. But then I found the listing for the IFL, the International Fight League, still yeah. very new at the time. And they had a New York office and they were looking for somebody, an editorial manager to run their website and write content for their website. And I was like, this is, I'm so perfect for this job. There's no way I'll ever get it because nothing in life ever happens that way. And then somehow I got it. And that was like, oh, great. That was the beginning of like, okay, now I'm actually using these interests and passions uh, to make a living. And um, then it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, you mentioned Chad, uh, obviously our coworker and your friend, and you guys have the co main event together. I'm sure everybody who listens to me listens to you. <laughs> like, I feel like we intersect in that sense. Uh, but when did uh, when did that idea uh, first come up? You know, I think it was my wife, uh, Sarah Aswell. I think she was the one who suggested it. And I think she had been suggesting it for a little while, and we were both like, I don't know, everybody does podcasts, and we don't know anything about doing podcasts, and we Relatable. were not... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it just felt, it feels even more so now, but even at the time, it was like, okay, so a couple of middle-aged white dudes are going to do a podcast about the thing that they're into, huh? Where they just sit around <laughs> at somebody's kitchen table and talk about it, like, it's like what that a brilliant meme, idea. Uh, from the Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, flower, florals in spring. How original. <laughs> well, yeah. It worked out for you, though. It did. I mean, I don't know that either <laughs> one of us really, for one thing, thought we'd be doing it this long. Like, yeah. It, what year weird. was that? It was, I was, I was still working at MMA Fighting at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, like, it was before, like just before I took the job with MMA Junkie. I remember the way I kind of anchor it in time is that it was, just prior to Chad's oldest child being born. Uh, and she's like seven now. So seven or eight, uh, I think mm -hmm. seven. Um, yeah. So we've been doing it. Yeah. A little over seven years, like seven and a half years, I think, which it's weird to be reminded <laughs> of that. Yeah. And it's just weird to just that we have, like you interact with the same listeners for like years and you're like, I, I think of this person as my friend and I have no idea what they look like or never met them in person and probably never will. And it's such a, uh, like a thing that I never really expected would be in my life. But then it's actually like a really enjoyable community to be a part of until they start bugging me for where their koozies are. <laughs> That's, um, it's crazy that you mentioned that. Cause like, obviously my podcast is way new. I don't even know, like this is, probably the 20th episode or something. And um, first, I cannot even imagine doing it for seven years. Uh, but also, like, uh, this thing that you mentioned about just sort of having a community, like, I kind of 
not that I have a community, there hasn't been enough time, but just uh, those people who do interact with the show, not just me, but with the show and who just send me ideas for the show and give me, and like who really, li who are, consider themselves listeners of my show. To me, it's insane, but at the same time, it's so cool. Like that's the one thing I was never really expecting when I started doing this. Well, I wasn't expecting first that I'd be able to get past the first episode and then that people would actually listen, but this is a, uh, a really cool part of it. Um, you mentioned the MMA fighting, and when I met you, obviously we were working together for MMA Junkie. By then, you already had like your beat, right? You had the column, um, the columns. You already like wrote the bigger features, and we all did like sort of pitched in on uh, Fight Night. But you were not the guy, like the hard news uh, guy. That so, how did you fall into sort of your beat? Uh, when it came to MMA writing? Like, did you know off the bat that, you know, you wanted to do, like, the deeper things, the more meaningful things? Or were you, like, kind of, like, did you end up finding yourself in that role over time? Yeah, I think it was more over time. But also, I remember when I was working for the IFL, and it was around, like, 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. And it did not take long of working for the IFL where I was like, you know what? I don't think this fight promotion is going to still be around in 10 years. I think maybe <laughs> I should start thinking about like the next career step after this. And so I started my own MMA blog, like just like a WordPress blog. And it was just like somewhere to put, because also, you know, I was a fan of the sport, so I didn't want to just write about the IFL. Like I'm watching the UFC whenever it's on. I wanted to write about the UFC and about pride. And, you know, I, You've met me. I form uh, opinions. I I have thoughts, and I don't <laughs> no, keep them to you? myself. No. <laughs> uh, and Would so yeah, like I, I just wanted a place to kind of put those, and also just to kind of slowly see if I could build up like a kind of my own byline uh, somewhere other than the IFL website. Which, understandably, a lot of people were just like, "Yeah, I'm not that interested in going to the IFL website to see what you got there." And so I did that. And when you're doing that, it's like. It's not like I had a ton of extra time outside of my job to be chasing down stories on my own. It was like you, know, you kind of have to look around and be like, okay, what's what's in the news, or what do I actually like? Is something an idea that I care about comes to me. Like, so it naturally takes the form of like an opinion column, and it was easier that way to like get engagement from readers who would just come there, you know, maybe to tell you what an idiot you were, but then they want to come back the next day and see if you're still being an idiot, you know, then. And, <laughs> In this way, a readership is built. And yeah, yeah so like that kind of became, and then it was, I think, from that blog, which I called The Fighting Life, and uh, Ben Goldstein, who was the editor at Cage Potato, was kind of just doing it all on his own at Cage Potato. Uh, he saw it and he liked it, and he was like, okay, this guy seems like we would get along and we might enjoy working together, and they were ready to hire somebody else. And so they hired me, and that's when I could kind of afford, like, okay. I was able to quit the IFL and just in time, like, you know, I quit. And then, you know, within three or four months, they were announcing like that they were stopping operations and stuff like that. Uh, and it was around the same time also that I got an offer to write a weekly column for Sports Illustrated online. And then mm -hmm. that was kind of the same thing. They wanted like opinion column stuff for the most part. And so, yeah, I mean, I would do like news stories and features and stuff when I could. And then when I worked for MMA Fighting, started doing more traveling to events and, and live event coverage and stuff. But also, like, you kind of realize that after a while of doing the live event coverage that there's, especially the way the USC does it, they're a really well-oiled machine in a lot of ways. But when you're there on fight week covering those events, you know how it goes. You just you kind of go where they want you to go and see what they want yeah. you to see and talk to the people they want you to. And there's not a whole lot of opportunity to really step out of that and find your own stories. Um, but like that beat can be kind of like fun, but also exhausting after a while. And then you... You, there's like a blur of years where I look back and I'm like, was I at that event? Like I could, I could kind of convince myself either way. I just can't even really remember them all. Um, yeah. So yeah, like it's a weird, it's a kind of a weird way to live. I'm glad I don't live that way right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. Um, I and I that's the thing. Like because I at Junkie particularly, I was working in my second language. Like I didn't really have to do as much, I guess, as everyone else. Uh, but it just like it just feels like you're 
on this runaway car. <laughs> you have no control of what's happening. You're just like going with it. Uh, and then you just, you know, go above water to breathe for a little while and then you're back in. Um, I It's not the type of life that I enjoy either. So I kind of like the day-to-day now, which I'm just getting to do, right? But one thing that I did notice um i've always sort of had opinions myself i don't know if you've noticed um (laughs) you know um but i've always done that like in terms of just twitter and social media and things like that uh it wasn't something that i had really a chance to do with my work a lot and then uh at the athletic i do uh with my writing and of course with this podcast and what i noticed is um you know, when you're doing the day-to-days, one thing, but when you're doing columns and opinions, um, people want to discuss your opinions. They have opinions <laughs> on your opinions. <laughs> and they're very uh, vocal about it. And, you know, you kind of like, I think, make yourself more vulnerable and more open to different types of interactions, which aren't always as positive, which is a very long-winded way of asking about something that we have actually talked about before, just criticism uh, and feedback and just bad comments and things like that. Like at this point of your career, does um, that affect you at all still? Uh, That part has changed a whole lot for me over the years. And, you know, but it's also it's going to be different for me than it is for you because just noticing, I remember when I was working I can't, like maybe at MMA fighting or maybe at cage potato. And I would talk to Maggie Hendricks a lot when she uh, worked at Yahoo. And we would sometimes compare like the kind of criticism, like comments or like angry emails or stuff we would get. And when somebody would disagree with me, it'd be very specific to me. Like I, this opinion that you have is stupid and you're stupid. You're a, like a stupid individual for having this opinion. And you'd be like, Oh, well, okay. I guess I, like that's, <laughs> I wish they didn't give you my email so that you could write to me with this, but they do. Uh, but then when Maggie would do it, like, the stuff that she would get would just be like, what do you think you can possibly know about fight sports? You're just a woman. And, like, it was just a completely different type of attack. And, like, it would just make people mad that she even had an opinion regardless of what that opinion was. And it was just a completely different feedback that she was getting and it was way more vitriolic and it was weird too because they would be like okay what have you what kind of fight sports have you done what do you know about i'm like man maggie hendrix has probably more fight experience than ariel helwani but like nobody is really saying that or like they're not saying it to him as much and yet they would just seize on that kind of stuff like just for her existing and it was like for me they i sort of that was kind of the first time i realized like okay the, the feedback we are getting is of, like, we would both say, like, oh, yeah, we sometimes get ne- negative feedback, but it's very different. And, like, the way you respond to it then is going to be very different. But, I mean, it used to, like, there were times where it would bother me. I had to make a rule for myself, like, that I'd stop reading comments on anything yeah. I wrote. It's only now that I work for The Athletic that I have kind of tried to retrain myself to be like, it's okay now. You can go back into the comments section. <laughs> And it's it's reasonable. okay now. It's over. It's safe. Yeah, you can you safe. can step out there. Yeah, and I mean, well, people unless, sometimes... unless you are dealing with Gary J, though. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, sometimes uh, I'll still like encounters people be like, "Oh, well, I think you could have made this point, or what about this?" And you're like, oh, "Okay, you know, like whether I agree with you or not, like it's uh, a, a fair point made in good faith and usually made pretty reasonably and respectfully." And it just feels like, okay, we're having more of like a civil discussion rather than somebody just like getting in here solely with the purpose of being a jerk. And uh, I don't know, after just so many years, you kind of, it just, you get a better sense, I think, of like what to do with different types of criticism, like what to take seriously and what to just dismiss. I got a lot happier, I think, in my life when I just started using the Twitter mute button um, you block somebody and they're like, you know, they almost take it as like a badge of honor. Like, oh, I got yeah. blocked. Look at this guy. <laughs> and you mute them and they never, they don't know. They think that they're still talking. They might think that we've been in a conversation for years and I, and I muted them in like 2012. Like who yeah. knows it, it. And that I think once you just kind of get a little better at like drawing the line and like deciding what you let in and what you don't, then it gets a little bit easier. Um, I aspire to be like you one day. This is giving me hope, really, that one day I can reach your level. Um, yeah, 
of just enlightenment. But <laughs> I was actually going to ask about your policy on muting and blocking because I am like you. I'm more of a muter myself because I take some pleasure in thinking of this person just like screaming into the void and just yelling at me. Because sometimes people are yelling at me and I find out by accident because like somebody steps into the conversation to defend me or something. And I'm like, what are you, what is, and then I see the entire conversations because Twitter is like, this tweet is from a person you muted and that's evil because of course you're going to click on that. Really? There's you no do? Because I don't. You're, I, you're telling I me you don't click on that. No, never. I give myself a little like pat on the back whenever I see that because I'm like, you know what? Past Ben really made a good decision here. He he prevented me from having this interaction that I don't want to have or like even just spending one second of my day on this that I don't want to give up. And he did me a favor. And this that little when I see that little bar that says this is from a person you muted, then I'm just like, all right, like the system is working. Uh, and good job, everybody, you know, and, and I you're, go on my way. You're too normal. You're too well balanced for this podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like your voice is like my conscious voice. So like my good brain voice is what you're saying right now. <laughs> well, but I my mean, bad brain makes a lot of my decisions for me. The thing I always come back to that I kind of had to eventually just be honest with myself about was that, you know, if you wrote a story and you're reading the comments from it, especially a story where it took you a long time and you put a lot into it and you you really you felt good about it, but also, you know, you realize it's kind of a big deal. And so you're looking at the comments to see how it's being received. And you can see 10 really great comments of people being like, hey, good job. I really enjoyed reading this. Like, this is a great thing. And then you see one where somebody's being a jerk about it. And it's that one that you would dwell on. And it your brain yep. doesn't use them equally it doesn't be like okay yes. like that's one tenth of like this other like, it just doesn't do like uh i think it was in like this uh hemingway kind of like pseudo memoir kind of thing he wrote about hunting in africa and i think like his son finished it so it's weird you don't know who wrote exactly what called true at first light but in it he is at one point he gets a stack of like fan mail and he's like he's hemingway at that point like he's everybody knows him he's super famous uh, won a ton of awards and everything. And there's like a letter from some lady in Omaha being like, I read this novel that you wrote and I don't think it's very good. And like, I don't know what the big deal about you is and like why everybody talks about you. Like, I think you suck. And he's like on safari in Africa and he spends like kind of all day brooding. Like he's walking around doing his stuff, but he's still brooding about this letter. And you're like, man, that's that's Hemingway doing that. Like he he was pretty solid at that point in terms of like, being recognized as one of the best American writers and he's still worried about some lady in Omaha sending him a letter. Like that's just kind of evidence that like you, you kind of don't serve yourself by even diving into that. Yeah. Well, I, that's absolutely true. Still, <laughs> I know I'm making a horrible decision. I just cannot help it. But like you said, you're giving me hope. Maybe one day uh, when I'm as old and wise as you are, because again, you are an old man and I'm a very young person. Thanks for pointing um, that out. Thank I you. Can... I appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll do that. You you haven't listened to my bigger intro, uh, but I will mention that. So just... Um, <laughs> okay, good. Just good. Yeah. <laughs> Just a heads up. Um, but it does make sense. Unfortunately, my brain uh, doesn't always operate in those terms of what makes sense and what doesn't. But um, thanks for mentioning Hemingway. That's a lot, already more culture than my podcast has ever seen. I wanted to... Because that's all I got. Um, that's all the culture I got for you. But it's, it's more than enough. I'm exhausted. I think we just, just ended here, but we have like an hour to fill. So I'll just keep moving. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the story that you did recently on uh, basically fighters who got their asses kicked and how they dealt with it. And first, I really resented you because I wanted that story. Um, but then I got over it and sort of, not really, I'm still um, rooting. But you talked to a few fighters who, like the name said, went through like had some very bad nights in the cage and how the aftermath of that was. And I just, I, I found that so interesting. But one question that I think came up a lot, I think I saw it on the, um, on the athletic and on Twitter was just like, people were really curious about how you approached the people that, and we talked about it right in our staff meeting, like how yeah. are you going to approach the fighters to ask them about these very bad day? Uh, so, uh, I guess I wanted some insight on that process. Like how did you first pick, 
pick the people that you were going to talk to and how did you go about uh, approaching the subject? Yeah, well, uh, some of that in terms of how to approach it was in target selection because like knowing like, okay, here's people who I know from previous conversations are going to be thoughtful and analytical and also not so wrapped up in their own egos that they can't take a step back and realize like, like they know, yeah, I got my ass kicked that night. And sure, like I've thought about it and I, and I have some thoughts to share about the experience and things like that. Like I, I knew, and some of them were people where it's like, I had heard them tell a little bit of that story before and it was like, okay, here's the opportunity to go back and really hear the full story. And, and then some of it was like when we talked about in our staff meeting and, and being like, okay, how about this guy? How about this guy? Have you, have you talked, have you thought about reaching out to this person? And so that, that helped a little bit, especially because everybody, I feel like all of us on the athletic staff who we all have experience doing these kinds of stories and doing a bunch of fighter interviews, and you kind of keep this list in your head of like, here are the people who are kind of good interviews on any topic, mm-hmm. and they're yeah. thoughtful and introspective, and so you can count on them to have actually, you know, there's some people where you ask them questions and they're they're spouting cliches either because they haven't thought about it, they don't want to think about it, and they or they, they're worried about what they might say, and so they want to reach for something that's just safe. And you can kind of tell the people who, they're, you ask them a question, and they're actually going to think about the answer rather than just throwing something out there. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big part of it. But also just kind of like telling them, like, okay, I, I've talked to other people about this. Like, you're not the only one that uh, – it's not like – I was like, I tried to think of the worst ass-kicking ever, and I come up with you, like – <laughs> that everybody is that this is kind of a a somewhat universal experience for people who are in this business and you know we wanted to hear your take on like your exact situation and, and a lot of times it's like they remember those fights i think better than they remember a lot of the wins especially a lot of like the easy or quick wins and i were like specifically talking to Nate Quarry about that where he was saying how he and Robert Follis, you know, the late uh, Robert Follis, who went before he was a coach, was was a fighter, and they, they both fought on some small event in Oregon. And Nate Corey fought some guy who had just kind of like stepped up on short notice and was like, "Sure, I'll fight. I'll fight tonight." And uh, Robert Follis fought uh, Trevor Prangley, who, who was super tough, like kickboxer and everything, uh, with a good like strong wrestling background, and uh, just got beat up. And lasted like the made lasted all the way to the distance and made the decision, but like lost a lopsided decision. And Nate Quarry just knocked out some guy who had taken the fight on like 24 hours notice. And afterwards, they were talking, and he was trying to saying how he was trying to explain to Robert Fallis, like, "Hey, I kind of am jealous of you. Like, you got to go out there and show everybody how tough you were, and went through this tough fight and everything. And I'm not really going to remember this quick victory over a guy who probably shouldn't have even taken this fight." Like you're going to remember the the time that you really proved something to yourself by even just surviving this fight. And so like I think when you get down to it with them, that was one of the things that a lot of them wanted. Like they had strong feelings about that topic and they had a lot of like really distinct memories about it. Like and getting to to hear those stories and everything I, that's always my favorite part because you I love that feeling of going to bed knowing something that you didn't know when you woke up or like having this somebody else's a piece of somebody else's story and experience like kind of in your head that you didn't have yeah i get that too sometimes i'm like i'll finish an interview that is so good and i'm like i wish i didn't have to write this <laughs> i just yeah. want to keep this story because <laughs> like, when i write it like writing can be hard and you know like it's gonna ruin some of that experience for you and then i just want to like no i just want to cherish this is there a way that i can just make money by listening to people without going to school to be a therapist because that's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds you, like a lot of work <laughs> you always have to cut stuff out and decide like what to keep and what to leave out and everything yeah and uh there's always like good stuff that where you're just like, Oh, I would love to find a way to put this in the story. But the fact that I feel like I'm finding a way to put it in tells me I probably should leave it out. Yeah. That's that. And that's the process that I think like that I'm just starting to really get uh, better at um, just cutting the quotes out. Cause that's the thing. Like you start you, for me, it was just, I'm very, I'm a very wordy person. Uh, people might have noticed by reading me. Um, uh, And I've just, I'm really working on just like me on editing myself. And I think I found it easier to edit myself 
And then the toughest part for me was learning how to edit the quotes because I just feel like everything they have to say is so goddamn interesting. I mean, that's when I was in the creative writing school, like in, in grad school, you, somebody would bring in a story that they had to workshop and like you could tell like, okay, here's this paragraph that they love. Like they really thought they were writing the hell out of this thing here. <laughs> and they, and, but like as a reader, you read it and you're like, oh, this is a little bit overdone. And like everybody's sitting there going like, yeah, you got to cut this part. And you can tell they're going, no, I love that part. And it's like, yeah, no, we know you do. But listen to us on this one. Like it's for your own good. Yeah. I, I, I feel like we need, we all need to hear that sometimes. And it yes. sucks. <laughs> But uh, it's something that I had to get used to, uh, and it sucks. But like sometimes we just need to to hear that the thing that we thought was so awesome. Yeah, we have to kind of let it go. Um, that story in particular, like I I came out of it really thinking about. I think it's a powerful metaphor, and that's something that I I think a lot about MMA. Like a lot of the things of these experiences that um, these fighters go through are just like very just magnified metaphors of what a lot of us go through like everything is it's times a hundred because it's so public and so intense and the stakes are so high mentally and emotionally and financially and physically but um with this one i think that you know i I really thought a lot about failure because that's the thing that's so universal right we all know how that feels um and these guys are experiencing it and girls obviously are experiencing it in a way that is just so, so public and so humiliating in a way. And they get to see their failure sometimes um, broadcast over and over, um, right? So my question in terms of that is just a little bit of abstract, but like every now and then I'll finish writing or reading a story and I'll just start really, I'll get introspective about it and just kind of like, you know, it stays with me and I start applying it to my life. Like, do you have that feeling as well sometimes when you when you finish writing a story like this? Yeah, well, especially uh, I've thought a lot of, or like I end up using a lot of stuff that I have gleaned from MMA coaches over the years. Like mm-hmm. just, and not like self-helpy kind of stuff, but just stuff that, you know, when you're talking to them about how they go about this process and how they, what they have learned about the the practice of learning and and putting into practice new skills and and i'll use it like with my kids even like i remember talking (laughs) to greg jackson once where he was talking about how uh in order to be a really good and well-rounded mixed martial arts fighter you got to be able to put on the white belt sometimes like you got to be able to be like okay here's a thing that i am not good at that i'm a beginner at and i need to in order i need to put myself in a situation where I'm going to suck at it and I'm going to suffer and it's going to be frustrating and humiliating, but I need to go through that in order to get to the point where I'm better at it. Like, and that his criticism of a lot of fighters was like, you know, you get some guy who comes in here and he's a really great wrestler and he came from a really great college wrestling program. But if he knows if he goes out there and kickboxing practice, he's going to get pieced up and he doesn't like that. And he can't ego wise, he can't put on the white belt. And so he's never going to grow enough to really get there. And you have to be able to put on the white belt and a lot of different things uh, in order to like become just a well-rounded individual. And like it comes up a lot when you're parenting like a seven-year-old <laughs> and, and she doesn't want to do anything because she's not, or she expects that she's going to sit down to like do some art project and it's going to be perfect the first time out. And stuff like that, I end up kind of incorporating into my own life. I think often without realizing it. But I, th- I mean, there are times when I realize that the thing that I really like about this sport about combat sports in general like is like you said that there's they go through the same stuff basically like the same life cycle even it's just in such a shorter span of time and the intensity is cranked up so high like the highs are higher and the lows are lower like the pain is worse um and the the victory or like the the ascendancy feels so much more sudden uh but it's it, it kind of serves for people whether they realize it or not. Like, I don't think everybody, I mean, I think there's some people who go out there and they're just like, I want to see somebody bleed. I want to see somebody get knocked out. And I just want just sheer violence for the sake of violence. And I don't care who it is. But I think for most people, whether they are conscious of it or not, it's, you're in it for these like inspiring moments where you're watching like Dominic Cruz and John Jones. And there's that shot of them both like super exhausted and beat up standing there before the last round, looking across the cage at each other and wondering, you know, who's going to break, who's going to be the one to, to take a backward step. And like, 
finding a way to push themselves to a point where maybe they didn't know they could. And it's inspiring in a way. And I think that's what a yeah. lot of what people get out of it, even if they're not telling themselves that that's you know why they paid the $65 watch the pay-per-view. I think you said Dominic Cruz, just to clarify. Dominic his Reyes. I think, because uh. I, I was like, Dominic Cruz, okay. It's, but I think it's said Reyes. Uh, and it, I cannot really relate to the parenting uh, a child thing, but I do have to parent myself. And it often <laughs> feels like parenting a seven-year-old. So I can kind of relate uh, <laughs> when it comes to that. Um one thing that I often come across, and I think we've established you're a more like well-balanced uh, person emotionally and basically in every aspect of your life than I am, but um, something that I experience a lot, and I think that it comes through a lot uh, in my writing, is conflict. Like, I'll start writing whatever. It doesn't need to be a... It can just be a simple feature or profile that doesn't seem like uh, it's that big of a deal, but I think the sport like gives me a lot of conflicts and inner conflicts. Like, I'll write something and then um, I just really start thinking about, you know, how these people are getting paid crap to do what they do. And ultimately, like, they're doing this for other people to be entertained. And how cruel is that? And I'm like, I'm part of this machine because I'm writing about this. So I must be an awful human. And then I stop myself and then I'm like, oh, no, but these people are consenting adults. (laughs) They're not toddlers. They're doing this because they want to. So it's their job. I just kind of like go through these mental cycles when I write. Um, And I I, I don't know, like, I don't really come up with answers. (laughs) It just, I let it show in my work. But do you, do you have any type of like, do you have any sort of conflicting feelings about MMA when you write? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think anybody who follows the sport or boxing or, or you know pro football or you know, like, I, if you follow it and you don't feel some kind of inner conflict about it and about what's going on and about when what your role in it is, then you're probably just not thinking about it enough because or, or you you maybe lack a certain degree of empathy because mm-hmm. I, I think you kind of I think that's the the best you can hope for honestly is that like I will acknowledge the conflict uh, I will where I can, you know, like advocate for like the things that can get better to get better. But at the same time, if it's a sport where people are beating each other up and there's always going to be some physical consequences that you can't remove that part of it. But you also recognize that we're not necessarily doing anybody any favors. Like, like Greg Jackson, uh, another thing I remember him saying once is I don't believe we should nerf the world. And it's like, yeah, you know, I, I, I also kind of agree with that. Like we're, we are all going to take our beatings in one way or another, and we're not going to end up okay at the end. Not a single one of us is going to end up okay at the end, even if we don't do anything. Uh, So that's just part of the, the humanity that's built into it. But I, I do think that you can't, you do everybody a disservice if you just try to pretend that those conflicts don't exist. Like if you just mm-hmm. ignore them. And I know I encounter like some fans sometimes who are just like, okay, I want to hear about this part of it. Like I'm just, I'm here to be entertained. And in a way I kind of get that because I have uh, the, I have other stuff that I watch. Like uh, I'm, you know, kind of into hockey. Like I play the very lowest recreational level of hockey, but I watch like NHL games and stuff. And there's a part of me that's also like, I'll read some of the athletic coverage on the NHL and they have some really great stuff. But then there's also a part of me that's like, don't learn too much about this. You don't really want to know too much about this world because you want to still be able to just relax with a beer and enjoy it. And, and you lose Like I've definitely lost some of that when it comes to football, like pro football, especially college football where, you know, there it's really exploitative. Like they're not even getting paid and you, something gets ruined for you there by having to have that conflict be part of it. But it's also, I think, you you can't just stick your head in the sand and, and pretend like it's not there. You you mentioned, uh, you know, other sports. I think that, you know, we are in the bubble and we and that's like what we do in part of our lives. And I think it's the same for both of us in that, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and watch a lot of documentaries about other things. But, you know, MMA ends up consuming a whole lot of my day uh, and we both have like I think the same sort of like political leanings <laughs> you could say uh, I'm a progressive person I think you would describe yourself as a progressive person as well and I would. Um, MMA does not 
always agree with that, you yes. could say. <laughs> uh, and I, I think I felt that a lot in the Brazilian elections when everybody turned out to be a Bolsonaro supporter. I got a lot of questions about that. But in the US, like you have... You know, a lot of fighters, not just fighters, but people in the business supporting Trump and things like that. Um, and I've had, I've heard a lot of, of, of this question, like, is MMA more right wing? Is MMA worse? And I don't know if I have an easy answer for that, uh, which is why I'm asking you, because I'm very lazy. But do you feel like MMA is sort of, not even in terms of just right wing politically, but in terms of just the general spectrum, like, do you feel like MMA is worse in a sense or do you feel like it's sports in life and we just think that MMA is worse because that's the bubble we're in? You know, Chad and I have talked about this a lot before, how one of the things that I remember us talking about was how many MMA fighters seem to love conspiracy theories of one kind or another. <laughs> yeah. or like, uh, you, and to some extent, you kind of get it. Like We've also talked about how you will hear a lot of this same kind of attitude, you know, what Chad always likes to call the, the bunker mentality, where they'll be like, okay, everybody is against me. Powerful forces have aligned against me, and the promoter doesn't want me to win. They're trying to set me up to lose. And it seems to be like, whether they realize it or not, just like a motivational tactic, right? something I could tell myself to really get fired up and to push myself or also maybe to give myself an out if it doesn't work out like hey they, they were all against me and that's why uh, this didn't go my way but i also think that maybe that lends itself to more right-wing ideology i don't know it like uh, chad and i have definitely talked before where you're like okay you, you you hear about some fighter you're like this guy seems pretty rad he's a good fighter follow him on Instagram. And then the next thing you know, you're like, oh, well, there's a complicating factor. Like now that I know, and <laughs> you just feel like maybe the thing to do is to not learn too much about people's individual political beliefs. But then there's also fighters who I've talked with over the years where like, I'm like, man, we do not share a single political belief, but we can actually have a conversation about it and it's okay. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe see some aspect of each other's point of view. Uh, but then there are other people where you're just like, yep, nope, there's no point in us having this conversation at all because neither one of us is going to change his mind and neither one of us is really going to get anything out of this other than angry. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there is really like a reason why fighters would tend to be more right wing. I don't know. I mean, why do uh, journalists probably tend to be more left wing? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there is an answer. That's why I asked. <laughs> I didn't want to answer, so I asked you. I feel like, you know, as as the host of this podcast, I get to be um, like that. So That is a perk, Sorry. yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that, like, okay, here we're talking about political leanings and things like that, and I'm with you in that. I think during the elections, and I've talked about this in a previous episode, like, it really, really bothered me just because of the volume uh things were really turned up to a very high volume and things became like very polarized so it just hurt more but like the elections have passed and i think that you know there are ways that you can really reconcile certain things but beyond that i mean sometimes we're dealing with just like very bad like bad shit like not politically bad shit but like you have situations with assault and uh, or alleged assault and alleged sexual assault and shit like that. And, you know, obviously we had the situation recently with Conor McGregor uh, being accused. We Everybody knows what's happening. Being accused uh, of uh, two separate um, stances of sexual assault there in Ireland. And then we've had, you know, this come up with Anthony Johnson and, and, and other people. And I think a lot of a lot of the times people like sort of the online we get a lot of people just asking us to act on this on different ways right like a, a story will come out and you have like a bunch of people saying why are you mentioning this like this is not relevant to the story and then other people are like you should be more you should be pressing the issue more you should be talking more about this why is the media and they say it as where this like evil monolithic entity just out to ruin everything why is the media ignoring this um and sometimes I find myself like having that conflict when I'm writing the 
it's just simple things. Like I'm writing one sentence and I'm like, okay, I need to be very careful in how I'm going to phrase this entire situation in this one tiny sentence because I have to mention that this is happening, but at the same time, this is not the gist of the story. So basically, do you, uh, you know, I struggle with the idea of like, what is my responsibility as a journalist in this particular situation? Um, and I often, again, do not have the answer for that. But do you also struggle with that sometimes? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think sometimes the the fact that you're struggling with it is a sign that you're at least like giving it the, the proper amount of thought. I mean, some of it you should struggle with. And that's that's the only way to kind of figure it out is to feel like, OK, there's a, a conflict here that I have to sort out and find the right degree of uh, like balance on both sides so that I, I'm not glossing over stuff. I'm not you know, trying to sweep anything under the rug, but I'm also not unfairly zeroing in on something that is not entirely relevant to what I'm doing. But I mean, you do hear it from people all the time. And it's not just like with those sorts of issues, all types of issues where people are like, Hey, why are you writing about fighter pay? Like, I don't care about fighter pay. Like, you know, I'm just here to watch the, I, I care about who's going to fight for the title next. But then other people just be like, how can you write about this stuff without writing about how they're being abused as independent contractors? And so mm-hmm. like media, I think it was one of those one of those fields where by being a consumer of it, a lot of people think that they are an expert on it, like how it should be done, uh, even if they've never personally done it. And, and you know, the, the less you've done of something, often the simpler it seems to do. And yeah, I, I think in some instances there is that. But it's also like we live in a weird time of being able to really curate your own media environment. And so... Like the, the things you hear or what you think is normal, what you think media should be doing depends a lot on like what media you're choosing to consume. And you I get a sense of it, you know, like through Facebook or something where some of my relatives or some of my friends where you see it and you're like, wow, we just ex- like we are living in the same country and hearing the same broad strokes of news stories uh, in our day to day lives. But we might as well be living in completely different realities. Like we're not even accepting the same things as facts and that's a really weird place to get into just like culturally because i don't i'm not sure i know the way out of that or the the answer to that yeah and speaking to things that uh we probably don't know the answer to um (laughs) i i was we we actually were having this conversation earlier um about just like the state of, again, the evil monolithic entity of media, which we're a part of. And I'm going to introduce a concept that uh, is a very Brazilian concept because I know you like oh, I <laughs> that love sort these. of shit. <laughs> we call it the Toshinis Dilemma. Toshinis is a brand of like bread and cookies and shit. Um, and there's a dilemma. Like They had a slogan that said, is Toshinis fresh because it sells more or does it sell more because it's fresh? Oh, okay. I so, get it. It's a <laughs> the Toshini dilemma. I use that a lot. It's a great analogy. Uh, and I think sometimes when you're talking about uh, media and quote unquote clickbait, which is a term that is not used accurately most of the time, but okay. Um, I, you know, there's this thing about uh, media putting out clickbaity content all the time and then you know you often get the excuse that you know it's this is what is coming out because this is what people are clicking on and we need clicks because we need to make money so tough tits and then you know people are complaining about that and say no we're consuming this like everybody's consuming this because this is what is being put out and you know this is what's available it's the media's fault so you kind of like have this loop that it's not very productive um but you know it's where we're at and i often like try to you know i wonder like what is the solution to this like how do you break this cycle and how do you put out more quality content i think we there are i like to think that the athletic is a good step forward people complain a lot about the paywall we both know that because we both get a lot of messages about that on twitter but um is one way of sort of helping that it's still and still we're stuck to some things right subscriptions metrics they don't entirely go away but um how do you how do you see this like do you think that there is a solution or do you think that it's getting better in any way or getting worse like how do you look at that the toshini's dilemma of media and, and clickbaity content yeah well for one thing you talk about how people don't use like clickbait correctly i, I think i feel like we need yeah. a different term 
Because clickbait I always thought of as like, okay, here's a thing where you're promising me something in the headline that when I click yeah. on it and I get into the story and like once I actually get there, I realize you kind of lied to me. You don't actually have the thing that you said you were going to yeah. have in here. And you, I was misled. I was hoodwinked uh, by your headline <laughs> and you got my click out of it. And like, I, I wasted my time, but I'm going to go. But then I think there's also a thing where it's like, okay, the stuff where you are delivering what you're promising, but like what you're promising is really, it's kind of junk food basically where it's like, you know, I'm going to eat a few potato chips here. And like, while I'm eating it, maybe the sensation of like snacking is satisfying, but afterwards I don't feel like I have eaten food. You know, I don't feel like I'm like have received any sort of nutrition from it. And I mean, I don't think that's entirely bad, but it does seem like, like there are times when I wonder if the ability that the internet gave us to track every single possible like metric and every single activity that everybody is doing was really just a terrible thing for us. Because before when it was like, okay, people are reading newspapers and you could be like, this is what sells more newspapers when you have it on the front. These are the sections people say that they are really into. These are the, the writers they say that they're into and that kind of stuff. But you didn't necessarily know entirely, like, here's how long they spent on each one of these stories. And here, like, here's the stories they didn't read at all. And, and here's the stories everybody read. And once you have those metrics in hand, I think it makes sense for people to try to gear their content towards it. But that, it's also like... The thing that frustrates me the most about MMA media, and I understand why it happens, but there's so many stories where I'll click on it, I'll see the headline, mm -hmm. and I'll read, I'll think that you're telling me, like, we have something. Like, we we dug up this information, or we went and asked for this information, and we got it. We talked to the fighter, and here's what we got from it. And it's kind of phrased that way, or presented that way in the headline. And then when I click through and I realize it, I'm like, wait a minute, you just read Twitter. Like that, or you, yeah. <laughs> you you follow this guy on Instagram. That's what you did, and you didn't add anything to it. You just all you did is you showed me. Here's what the guy said on Instagram. He posted two sentences and a couple hashtags and like a picture, uh, and that's it. Like you, you don't have anything to add to it. And so then basically you're saying like that your news, or your website is like I follow social media, so you don't have to, and. Mm -hmm that to me, like, that's where it gets frustrating. And I understand that those stories are, they're easy to do. You can do them really quickly and throw them up and do a whole bunch of them in one day. And they probably click yeah. very well. Like people are like, okay, Hey, yeah. Whether they realize that's what it's going to be or not, they, they're going in there and they're, they're pulled in by that. But it's also really kind of hollow and sad that like, it, it, is that all that we can really do here? Like, that, that starts to depress me after. And the, as far as like, why like the dilemma I, I really love that that what toshinis is that what the name of it is to, yeah toschinis toschinis with my accent <laughs> well like yeah. the thing that uh, martin scorsese wrote in the new york times not that long ago about the marvel movies where oh, he culture said, again oh yeah. my god all this free culture guys oh my god my listeners are probably exhausted at this point go ahead scorsese. Well, like, he he took a lot of heat you know for saying that he didn't think that the marvel movies were cinema or whatever oh, and then he tried to explain himself that. in like an op-ed and one of the points he made in the op-ed was like people look at these marvel movies and they're like look how much they bring in at the box office look at how popular they are so many people are going to see them and he's like yeah but also there are fewer and fewer movies in general being put out into theaters and the marvel movies are like kind of a guaranteed you're going to hit a certain number of like ticket sales and merchandise sales and everything. And so how do you know at some point whether the audiences like this and that's why they're making more or whether just like that's really more and more all they're making. And so then if the audiences want to go see movies, this is kind of one of their only options. Like mm -hmm. that, that dilemma I think still exists in, in a lot of other forms of media right now. Do you think, though, I feel like people are getting, I don't know, sometimes I catch myself being weirdly optimistic about shit and I check my temperature because I might be dying, but... Yeah, that's not um, you. That's, it's very, it's very uncomfortable. It's not, it's not good. Uh, but it happens. And especially with this, like, sometimes I feel like people are just, sometimes, even if they go about it the wrong way, like complaining that something is clickbait when it's not, that people are starting to crave something else again. Um, you know, and I, again, it could be the bubble. Uh, it could be that I'm just, you know, talking to a very small group of people thinking it, that it's a big group of people. But I do think that 
we might be working toward a positive direction in that sense. You know, do you feel that way too? Uh, like you in my more optimistic moments, I do. I mean, sometimes you, you wonder, <laughs> but I mean, also, I think that there's, you kind of have to remind yourself that there's not going to be one thing for everybody. You know, that there's mm-hmm. some people are, they never want to read something that's more than 500 words and it's just fine with them if you just give them a steady stream of content because all they're really trying to do is distract themselves from something else and and that's fine, you know, or maybe they just want to keep up on the, the barest outline of the news and, and nothing else. But then there are other people who are going to want to read like more in-depth stuff and then there's going to be other people who only want to watch videos. And I mean, yeah. I, I think that we can allow for like a, some difference uh, individual preference there uh and not but i mean i I think that's the the danger of everybody following the same kind of what clicks model is like the same thing when everybody was like okay we're all pivoting to video we were all are are convinced that video has to be the next big thing and if you're all just running in the same direction uh it doesn't work you know you 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 lose a lot there because you're all just kind of like homogenizing yourselves to be trying to do the slightly different versions of the same thing And I agree with you with that. And that's something I always say that, you know, I think there is a little bit uh, for everyone. And I don't expect anybody to even want to write the shit that we do because shit's hard and it's not for everyone. And some people actually like breaking, I don't know, fight bookings. I fucking hate it. I think it's just so boring. It's like my least favorite thing in the world. (laughs) I remember... having to like confirm a matchup before the UFC publishes and it's like fighter X and fighter Y and Rio Rancho. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't care, but yeah. some people well, and care. It might not even happen in the end. I mean, we might, you yeah. know, we're spending all this time to chase down a booking, but then it's going to be changed three weeks later when one of the guys breaks his hand. I, I, yeah. It, that's... But some people love it. Like they're, they're thrilled by that type of like chase and confirming that matchup and breaking that, that first, right? Like it's not my cup of tea, but I get that feels like, more into that. Like just in general, it seems like way less of a thing now than it was ten years ago. You know, on the like at you least think? for like MMA internet. Yeah, like it just, I remember that used to be like the thing was, and every once in a while, like I remember a like a UFC PR person or something like trying to, I don't know, like get in my good graces or feel like they're throwing me a bone or something. Be like, hey, I got something oh, for yeah, you. Oh yeah, you know, you, you want this, and and I remember like that stuff happening before where I was like. Man, I'm at AKA right now, uh, watching Daniel Cormier tool everybody up in wrestling practice. Like, uh, this is not really my like. I'll tell somebody else on the staff about it if that's yeah. you know if you're trying to like get that story out there. But like, is not really that interesting to me. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it isn't to me either. But to each their own. You do you, Boos. If that's what floats your boat, you go ahead. And I'm sure a lot of people like reading it too and finding out firsthand. So. Um, all of this to say that I'm with you. I think there's really room for everything. Um, I, we're approaching the end here because you have to, I guess, pick up your kid from school because you're a responsible adult person with responsible adult, um, responsibilities. Yeah, I don't and, like it um, any more than you do. Kill me. No. <laughs> but I like to end the show on a positive note. And my last question, like, um, you know, we talk a lot about heartbreak and conflicts and things like that. And I think there is a lot of it in the sport, but there's also like some really cool things. I get surprised sometimes. Like I recently wrote a story about corners um, and the idea of throwing the towel because yeah. it's something that it doesn't really happen a lot in MMA and talking to the coaches. Like I was very pleasantly surprised by some of their views on the entire subject. Like Saif uh, Saud, who's um, the head coach of Fortis MMA talked about uh, the protocols that they implement in terms of concussion and like how, you know, they have doctors following the training the entire time. And it's something that I didn't know. And I was like, Oh wow, this is like a really cool thing. And Conan Silveira from ATT was talking about, you know, just how uh, they're how careful they are about their training, which is something that I had heard from other ATT fighters, uh, especially Brazilians who went, you know, from this like very this culture of overtraining that I think we still have here in Brazil to really being um, to a more intelligent, I guess, type of, of, of training, you know, things that, you know, you're listening and not really expecting to hear be encouraged by but then you do and this story was one of those that i think i left i was like oh i guess i can be a little optimistic and positive about certain things so um 
after all this time, like, you have been at this much longer than I have because, again, you're a very old man and I'm a very young person. But <laughs> do you still have those moments when you're, like, just pleasantly surprised by the things that you hear and read and write? Yeah, mostly those moments come for me when I encounter someone who, like, the way that they are going about their, like, their life and their career and everything – Like I'm just really kind of amazed at the the resiliency that they have, or the mm -hmm. the passion that they have for it, like the work ethic that they have for it, stuff like that. Because especially, you know, you hear so much bad stuff, and there's there are there is bad like so much bad stuff that can happen to pro fighters just in terms of like the actual lifestyle and the the, the injuries, the physical toll that it takes. Uh, but also, like it just seems like combat sports has always been somewhat exploitative, uh, and There's so many reasons to that at times to feel depressed about it. And then when you talk mm -hmm. to these people yeah. and you realize like that even somebody who you would have looked at and been like, this person is in a bad spot and I feel bad for them. And, and uh, they feel like, you know, I am living my dream and there's nothing else that I would rather be doing. I get out of bed every morning being really excited to, for the opportunity to go do it. And I just hope that all I, you know, the, the, basically the prayer that I whisper each night is that please let me stay and continue doing this for a little bit longer. Yeah. And when you, any, I've always felt that way about anytime you encounter somebody who has like a really strong passion uh, for something and it doesn't even matter too much what that something is. I mean, as long as it's not like, you know, kidnapping children or something, but like <laughs> when you're close to that, specific <laughs> like you, you, you see that like somebody that is that Uh, fired up and that driven by something and it, and it's, it can't kind of not inspire you uh, you you get reminded like okay yeah this is this was somebody's dream and still is yeah well uh lucky for you we're out of time so you don't have to name the 10 awesome things about me uh please do think about that though i will quiz you next time uh, so i guess thank you so much ben uh for being here and if you want to Plug in. I'm sure you have a lot more listeners and followers than I do, but feel free to plug whatever you want to plug to my three listeners. Uh, here's what I want to plug. I don't know if people follow you on Instagram, but you if you click on Fernanda's Instagram story, oh my God. there'll be like 25, <laughs> 25 installments like in, the, in a 24-hour period. And I would like us all to agree as a society that this is wrong and perhaps criminal and uh, something should be done. Something should be done about it. I think that there's a max of three, possibly four, if you went to a concert or something really cool, Instagram stories in a 24-hour period. This is the hill I'm willing to die on. Thank you very much and good night. Oh, thank you. I, I, I honestly, I'm positively surprised that it took so long for you to roast me. Um, <laughs> I was actually expecting this to happen right away. So thank you. That was... That was, uh, that was a courtesy that <laughs> very polite of you to wait until the end. So for the rest of you, yes, please do go to my Instagram and see all my awesome stories and follow me on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast and rate it and review it and come back next week for more MMA and other stuff. Bye.